Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you. The Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. wickingvicar.com. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO. Online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 28 on Church Authority. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks, Sean. It's so great to be back with you and your listeners again today. Yeah, always a great pleasure to have you on. We always appreciate having you on. A lot to cover here today, big article, so we're just going to cut out the chit chat and get right to it here and that wonderful teaching that you always bring for us. And as this is a longer article, just to set this up for our listeners, I'm going to read the first three lines here, and then you'll give us kind of our overview and set up what we will be talking about here as those first three lines set up really quite well for us. But then moving forward, we're actually just only going to bring in excerpts and you'll just kind of cover and summarize each of the sections as we'll kind of break it up here today just so that our listener kind of understands how we're going to attack this here today. Uh, but let's get into it. So this is Article 28 from the Augsburg Confession on Church Authority. Of course, a reminder on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord available to you from Concordia Publishing House, publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And again, this is the first three lines of Article 28 from the Augsburg Confession on Church Authority. There has been great controversy about the power of the bishops, in which some have terribly confused the power of the church with the power of the state. This confusion has produced great war and riot. All the while, the popes, claiming the power of the keys, have instituted new services and burdened consciences with church discipline and excommunication. But they have also tried to transfer the kingdoms of this world to the church by taking the empire away from the emperor. Learned and godly people have condemned these errors in the church for a long time. All right, thus far, Article 28 from the Augsburg Confession on Church Authority. All right, Pastor Bestel, set us up here with an overview, just kind of what are we addressing here in this article? Uh, In a lot of ways, it seems like this is 
probably foreign to our listeners' understanding just because we don't have quite the same structure of church or really the government that they had at the time of the Reformation. Uh, And yet at the same time, it also kind of seems maybe a little similar here. You know, we might see this and, you know, in our American minds, we tend to think about separation of church and state and those sorts of issues that come in. So go ahead and set us up with an overview and get us into uh, this article here today. Yeah, the idea of separation of church and state that we think of today as Americans, perhaps there's uh, some truth to that in the confessions. And yet at the same time, the confessions point out that uh, or are written in a time in which you know, the Pope, of course, and, and what we probably most know about this historically is, as Lutherans, what we most know about it historically is that uh, we know that the Pope was constantly trying to uh, wrestle more and more power under himself, away from the emperor that's hinted at there in line three, at the end of uh, line two and in line three, and that there's sort of this constant struggle historically as to how much power does the church have in affairs of the state and vice versa. You, know, you even get things like the Crusades and, and the wars of the Crusades that the student of history will realize, you know, it came to be an abuse of power. Perhaps uh, early Crusades could be defined a little bit differently, but certainly an abuse of power. Um, if I recall correctly, it was Charlemagne who, uh, when he was crowned as king, was basically crowned by the Pope to show his power over the state. So we talk about separation of church and state as sort of two equals. We can point to the scriptures as, uh, you know, Romans 13. And yet in our own day and age, we can see where that can get conflated at sometimes. How do these two properly relate to one another? In Luther's day, it was certainly an aggression of the church over the proper place of the emperor. And and by the church here, we don't mean Christ's divine church, but rather those who had, in a sense, hijacked the church and the papacy hijacking the church and trying to turn it into an earthly institution. In our day, uh, we sort of struggle with saying, well, wait a second here. At what point is the church allowed to speak up at all against things in which it would seem that the state might be encroaching upon the church? So it's an interesting article because it has very relevant discussion to some of the things going on here today. But if we're to see it at face value, we're really to see that the article is sort of broken down into two or three different sections. The main argument or the basic argument is that there is this relationship of church and state as two realms under God's governance of his creation. And so how do those two relate with one another in the first 20 paragraphs or so relate to that? And then you get into this middle section, which sort of talks about, because the focus was on the pastor's abuse or the priest's abuse of their authority. And so what happens in situations where the priests claim a civil authority and maybe even claim that authority because they might belong to a civil vocation outside of their duties as priest. And so that sort of comes into play here. And then the third part of this will be, well, what about the priestly authority within the church regarding customs? I mean, these are the things that, you know, were burdening people's consciences, that excommunication was threatened over. And so you can see in this article, the main thrust of the article historically is the abuse of the clergy or the abuse of the church in trying to carry out too much authority either over the state or within the life of the church, other than simply word and sacrament and law and gospel, the office of the keys. And yet, we can see where there would be other tangential issues that would be related to our day that might actually be gleaned from this uh, article as well. So it's quite a fascinating article. I think to make it as simple as possible in breaking down, you could even say this, the first half or so of the article 
you could point the reader to Romans 13 and the proper relationship of God saying, yes, the, the state is there for my governance over the creation and not just the church. And then the second half of the article, you could almost point to 2 Timothy 1, in which Paul exhorts Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words. And the whole second half of the article is, what use are the customs? What use is the liturgy? Uh, how does a pastor wield these things properly without burdening consciences and yet for edification and teaching in the church? So just overall, so much to talk about in an hour, and yet what a wonderfully relevant article for our day and age. Absolutely. And they get right into it here then. And the next section that we'll have you kind of cover here is paragraph four through 11 or so, uh, lines four through 11. And just from line four here, you know, they kind of set up this section here. They say, therefore, and that's in response to the errors in the church that they just talked about at the end of line three there. So therefore, our teachers, in order to comfort people's consciences, I'm just going to pause there. That's a point that we keep driving home. I mean, it's so evident here in the Augsburg Confession. It's for the comfort of consciences that we are making this confession. Uh, so therefore, our teachers, in order to comfort people's consciences, were constrained to show the difference between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. So go ahead and get us into this section here of, you know, how do they lay out what that authority of the church is and what the authority of the state is? Let's start by pointing to a an argument that's often made, which is that religion causes war. And that's not true. Uh, certainly, Christ's doctrine does not cause war. But there can be historically some claims in saying that when those who wield the authority in religion want to interfere with the proper role of government, that can cause war and vice versa, right? When, when government wants to uh, interfere in that which properly belongs to the church. So we need to, and for the sake of consciences and for the sake of good order, we need to lay out what is the proper authority of each. And so the authority of the church is laid out first. The office of the keys, the giving of the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Uh, of course, implicit in that is not just the office of the keys singular, but the office of the keys plural, so that the church does have a binding authority over matters eternal, right? It does have a disciplinary role and not just a forgiving role, but it does have a disciplinary role in binding the impenitent. But it doesn't carry that out in the same way that the state would, right? The state is armed with the sword. The church is armed with the keys. And so the authority of the church is not found in establishing armies and building up a military and getting involved in civil affairs and sort of enforcing by, you know, democratic vote or some other things its will upon society. Rather, the authority of the church is found in word and sacrament and in word and sacrament alone. And again, when we talk about the word and sacrament there, it is implicit that there is a binding authority in word and sacrament. The reason that we have the preaching of the law is not just to prick the heart, but also, if you will, to bind the hardened heart. The reason that we have closed communion is not somehow just the safeguarding of the faith, but also to say to the impenitent, you may not receive the gifts of Christ so long as you are impenitent. So there is a binding authority here. And yet, certainly, the the natural office or, or the desire of the church is to give the forgiveness of sins in eternal life. This is its proper authority. This is its you know, most, most specific desire and goal is to share the benefits of the cross with all people. Uh, the benefits of the church are eternal. Again, this is a difference between the church and the state, right? So not only does the church not build up a military, 
but it also does not deal with, if you will, temporal benefits only, though it's fair to say that the things of eternity certainly impact temporal daily life, or we might say the baptismal life as it's lived out in daily life. But even that reality might remind us why some of the things that happen in the life of the church today, we can even point to this article and see and say, see how people are conflating these things. So, for example, when the church tries to claim as the gospel your best life now, it is bringing things eternal and promising them to be established on earth in sort of a temporal utopia where supposedly people are living the fullness of the kingdom of the gospel here on earth. That's just not what the scriptures say. The benefit is certainly a present tense here and now benefit, but not always to promise that life in this world is going to get better. For the Christian, life gets better or worse in terms of temporal comfort by how society goes, because that's really a matter of civil affairs. When society isn't going well, you know, we're recording this at a time in which our society is looking at recession and looking at a lot of problems that we didn't have a few years ago. And as that affects society, it also affects the church because we live out our daily life in society. And so the benefits of the church, though they might give us a very clear conscience and great comfort in daily life, they do not promise our best life now. That conflates the temporal and the eternal. It also conflates the promises of blessings from state and church. And so this first section has everything to do with saying the comfort for the Christian is in the things eternal, the things spiritual. Yes, as they touch daily life and as they define daily life, but as they carry the Christian unto life everlasting, all of that authority is found in the gospel. All of that authority is found in word and sacrament. Then the second part of this section is the authority of the state. For example, paragraph 11 says specifically, civil government deals with other things than the gospel does. Uh, Notice there's a wide chasm between what they deal with Uh, Not necessarily that the two will never touch each other and interact with one another in daily life, but they have authority over different things. It says, civil rulers do not defend minds, but bodies and bodily things against obvious injuries. They restrain people with the sword and physical punishment in order to preserve civil justice and peace. Now, notice here, it says, interesting, I, I find this one fascinating. It says, civil government does not defend the mind. Consider all of the efforts of our society right now and how the efforts in our society show this conflation in which the problems can go the other way too. Even though this article is focused on the priests' abuses in society, here we've got a great reminder of government's abuses in encroaching upon the things of the church. When government tries to control the mind and when it makes laws that says, you know what, All of the efforts of the pro-LGBTQ agenda, the diversity, equity, inclusion agenda, you must agree with those or else you are not a good citizen. That's an attempt to control the mind, which is basically nothing other than to say theology, the knowledge of God and God's will for his creation. That's theology. And so the government is now entering into a realm in which they are crossing over into the authority of the church to inform, educate, and comfort the mind and the conscience, right? So the government is now stepping into all those folks who sadly are so entangled in this web of LGBTQ and perhaps with a very burdened conscience about all of it. And the government comes in and says, no, we're not going to allow the church to call you to repentance and comfort you with the forgiveness of sins purchased by Christ upon the cross and delivered to you in word and sacrament. 
Rather, we're going to tell you, you have no reason to be repentant. You see, this is a theological issue, and the state has overstepped its bounds. So th these paragraphs 4 through 11 are a wonderful reminder that the state is to deal with defending the body from our enemies, defending us from evildoers, defending us with the sword, and it is to carry out God's will in that. I mentioned Romans 13 off the top, and it was an important thing to discuss during the pandemic and all of the lockdowns and all those to say, wait a second, just because God has given the state authority doesn't mean the state has the authority to do whatever it wants with the human body, but it is given authority by God merely to carry out and fulfill God's will for us in body. And then the same thing with the church. The church's authority, yes, is over the mind and the things of the conscience, but to only to carry out God's will. I like how you emphasize there that this distinction is when you call it the mind, you know, a lot of times our, especially secular society, would think of that in terms of psychology or things like that. And I like how you accented that it's theology. And you see this play out in some of those issues that we see commonly at tension in the relation in our world and so forth today, that really what's going on is you have a theology of the government being presented and put forth. And, you know, it has its worship tenets and so forth. It must be served or, you know, or else, you know, kind of thing. And I think we do well to accent that that way. Uh, one of the other things that with this distinction here of the authority of the church and the authority of the state that you laid out here for us, I think it's a good point to hit here that kind of the common language that we use in the Lutheran church for this is commonly called the two kingdoms, although I've brought it up on the show several times before that I prefer two realms because then we understand that it's one kingdom, it's God's kingdom, and he has established his rule through these vocations, these realms of the church and of the state, and that we don't see them as, you know, completely kind of off on their own, but in a sense related to one another, right? That they serve together alongside one another by God's command. And I think that's a helpful thing to cover a little bit too before we even get into the next paragraphs here. Yeah, I think that's a very important one for us to teach and reteach our people all the time, because when they see church and state as being so separate that the two never, ever, ever are related to one another, they tend to then also live their daily life that way. They live their daily life as if on Sunday morning, I'm a Christian, then during the week, I am a member of the state and I'm sort of a secular individual, rather than saying, no, that God gives the state also to care for the daily reality of the baptismal life, right? That the baptized do live in society and that God gives the government for the benefit of all society, including the baptized, not exclusively the baptized, so that even creation matters like marriage and daily bread. And we think of how the catechism talks about how God gives daily bread to all people, even the wicked, and he does so through government. Think of how that comes up in the large catechism and how often Luther refers to the importance of good government because if you have bad government, all of your daily bread will be taken away from you. And that's exactly what we are seeing in our own society right now, right? I, most people don't think that the current federal administration is doing a very good job. Is it coincidental that at the same time, we're watching daily bread evaporate right out in front of us? And so what ought we do? We should pray for our government rather than just blame them for everything and say, how dare you? We should pray for them. 
These are God's agents to do God's will. So I'm getting off track a little bit here, but but yes, absolutely, this relationship between the church and the state, so that we should see them as working together. And you know, I I sort of wish, if you will, that maybe there would also be more inclusion, even of, and I understand historically why it's not emphasized here, but even of the idea of sort of a third realm in all of this is the family right? That you've got church, state, and family, and those three realms sort of work together so that you've got a head of the household and you've got a head of the parish, the pastor being the the father of the parish, and then you've got the father of the government, uh, whether it's a, a monarch, a king, or a president, or the three branches as we've got in our constitutional government, that these father figures are meant to work together to carry out for you the will of the Heavenly Father. And that's something that the Christian can really appreciate learning and and meditating upon more in depth because it really shows that, yeah, it's not I'm a Christian Sunday morning and then I just live life, but rather the Heavenly Father has thought about how he's going to care for me all through this life that all of it may help me stay focused on and look forward to the life of the world to come. Yeah, I certainly agree. I I might say that at least for me, I think that tends to fall under the three realms of vocation underneath the authority of the state or the government, if you will. And Luther certainly talks about that too, you know, where you have the family, the church and society and so forth. And and of course, all of that kind of falls under the fourth commandment, but it's important to see that relation into this as well. And this is all kind of systematic thinking for us, right? You know, which is, you know, just an organized way of how do we engage our theology of what's being laid out here for us. And so this is an excellent distinction to set up and, you know, that we see it not as the separation, but really the distinction of these things. And that's what we're trying to make here. And they, they pick this up in kind of the next section as well. And I like using that term distinction because I hear echoes in this as we get into this next line, line 12, the church's authority and the state's authority must not be confused. So, you know, we, as Lutherans, we have the great distinction of law and gospel, right? Don't confuse law and gospel. Both have their place, right? And we are to rightly understand and distinguish them from one another. And that's essentially what we're saying here with the church and the state, right? And so get us into this section here, uh, paragraphs 12 through 18 here. Yeah, it's a good analogy to speak of law and gospel. Of course, we're not speaking of the state is the law and the church is the gospel. Of course, law and gospel exists in the church. And then the state, you know, carries out God's holy will through the law as well. But it's a great analogy because just as when we mishandle law and gospel, it just causes not only confusion, but in some cases, sadly, the murdering of souls. Also, when you confuse the authority between church and state, it brings just chaos into society. And so the confessors here talk about, uh, and again, their emphasis here is on the fact that historically the Roman church had overstepped its authority. So it, in this discussion, it's sort of focused in one direction, but we can also see by just the exercise of thinking through these things, how could it also be abused in the other direction? So it lists off things like, okay, let the church not break into the office of another transfer the kingdoms of this world to itself, abolish the laws of civil rulers, abolish lawful obedience, interfere with judgments about civil ordinances or contracts, dictate laws to civil authorities about the form of society. And as Lutherans, we would all agree on that or should all agree on that and saying, yeah, the government has a place over these, you know, over civil law, over the form of society, over civil contracts. At the same time, that needs a little bit of explanation. 
So where there's an overreach of church trying to do for the state what the state is given to do, there does come a point where because these are not separate but distinct, they also then are there to help, if you will, guide and inform each other where each other starts to err. So uh, what happens, for example, when the laws of civil rulers are contrary to God's will, right? We just recently heard about the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That doesn't end the issue of abortion. And now at a state level, does the church not have not only a quote-unquote right, but a godly duty to continue to speak up and say to society, the rules that you are creating or the laws that you are creating to terminate the life of the unborn and to sanction that. These are immoral rules. This is not God's holy will for his creation. Uh, What about judgments about civil contracts? And the first thing we might think of would be land contracts and business contracts and things. But what about the fact that marriage is a civil contract? Does the society therefore have complete say over that so the church just has to shrug its shoulders and say, oh, well, I guess now marriage belongs to anybody and everybody the way that society is now claiming? No, the church has a place to stand up and say, this is not God's holy will. God has defined marriage for all of creation and for all of society, and it is not the civil law's place to come in and redefine what God has clearly defined. So just because the church does not have the authority or the priests are not there to say, we're going to take the seats and the authority of the governors and the Congress and and those people who are entrusted with this vocation, that doesn't mean that we're not there to call each other to repentance and to say, wait a second, is this really God's holy will or do you need to rethink this? And in this way, we are actually honoring both church and state by keeping both church and state focused on what is God's holy will. That's how you honor right? Both are to be honored and acknowledged as God's gifts and blessings. The confessions say at the end of paragraph 18 there, both be honored and acknowledged as God's gifts and blessings. And if they're God's gifts and blessings, then though they are distinct, they keep each other focused on what is God's holy will. Again, that can get a little bit dicey. Do we really want the government saying, we're going to have oversight over the church as to what right theology is? That's not really government's place. But where the church does something within society that oversteps its authority or is abusive to societal members. Uh, For example, the papacy coming in and saying, uh, let's have a holy war and let's do crusades. Well, then it's right for a government to be raised up by God to say, no, this is not your place. Uh, Or, you know, you think of sadly where uh, priests or pastors abuse or molest or whatever, and this is always in the news now, tragically, there is a proper place for civil authority to come in and and investigate those types of situations. So you can see where the two do touch one another and, and are related in a sense, but they're very distinct because of their roles in saying the church has authority over things eternal and things spiritual. The state has authority over temporal matters and societal affairs, and these are both blessings from God that we might live all of our days rejoicing in his gifts. Absolutely. And then we're going to pick up here in the next section some more scenarios of this as we see it kind of play out, especially historically at the time of the Reformation. They're going to get into some of the issues there, but then uh, we'll see some more applications for ourselves even still today as well. But we're going to take a break here and we'll pick that up on the other side of the break, these kind of what-if scenarios, if you will, 
when we pick up with paragraph 19 on the other side of the break. As we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Mark Bestel, I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. Each weekday on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of living boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Concord Matters as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And we are covering Article 28 from the Augsburg Confession on church authority today. And Pastor Bestel, we're rolling right along here again for our listeners. We read the first several lines, kind of set up our overview of this article. But now we're just kind of covering the sections and and basically providing a summary and, and some highlights from that as it's really an expansive article and really, as we've seen so often, especially in these abuse articles, so comprehensive of so many things that do relate to the the very important confession of our faith and the centering on the gospel and the comfort of consciences, as we've seen highlighted again and again here, and that it's not just a matter of abuses at the time of the Reformation, but, you know, really how the rubber still hits the road for us here still today and why our confession on these things still matter today. And especially as we see this relation that, you know, this article is titled Church Authority, but really it's a, an understanding of understanding the right distinction of the authority of the church and the authority of the government as given by God and how they relate to one another. And so as we push forward here, getting into uh, paragraphs or lines 19 through 29 here is kind of the next section I'd like us to cover. Line 19 says, if the bishops have any authority of the state, this is not because they are bishops. Uh, Again, kind of accenting the distinguishing of those things there. In other words, it is not by the gospel's commission, it says. And so uh, get us into this section here and how we continue to understand this right distinction of the authority of the church and the authority of the state. Historically, you might have had priests or bishops who were claiming that they had civil authority just by the fact that they were bishops. And so when this dispute comes up, you know, that there might be this question of, well, what, what authority is had civilly? Uh, to put this into terms that we might recognize today, you know, I sort of sometimes refer to this as the what if section. What if an ordained pastor also has a civil vocation within government, as sometimes happens, for example, small town America, right? You might have, a, you might have an ordained pastor who's also a city assemblyman or, or something like that. In my area, uh, in the primary elections that happened just a while back, we actually had a man running for Congress, didn't win, who was an ordained pastor, non-LCMS man, but he was an ordained clergy in one of the Christian church bodies. So that raises the question, well, wait a second here. Let's say that you've got someone who, is, uh, who carries the authority of the church by his ordination and then also claims to have civil authority because, let's say, he's been elected or, or appointed to a, a, to a civil post. How do those two things relate then, and where is that distinction made? So 
if bishops or pastors have any civil authority, it's not because they've been granted that authority because they're pastors or bishops. And that's an important first distinction to make, that just because I'm pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church, that gives me no vocational authority within civil realm as if I should have more say in the governance of Elgin, Illinois. If for whatever reason I'm appointed into an office in Elgin, Illinois, all right, fine. However, if they do hold both offices, or you might say an office within the office of the Holy Ministry and then an office within the government, but then they conflate their use of those two, now you've got a problem, right? What if, what if a man uses the latter, his office within the civil government, as validity to preach a different gospel? Do we then shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, he's using his authority in the civil office? No, not at all. And this could come up very easily. Uh, you know, we talked in the first half of the hour about the idea of the church having authority over the mind and the state having authority over the body. But what if a man uses his authority incorrectly and says, you know, we're going to now declare that, and this is happening in some societies, I believe in, in European societies, that now anyone who dies is going to be cremated. And he says, you have to listen to me because I'm your pastor, as well as being a city assemblyman or governor or whatever. And it's, it would be right for the Christian to say, no, that's, that's an abuse of the authority because now a different gospel is being preached because we as Christians confess the hope of the resurrection. And therefore, we're going to confess that by burying our loved ones in anticipation of the resurrection of all flesh. So we can't just follow him because he's a pastor you know, in his day job, if you will, or uh, and then carrying out this other office and vocation in civil authority, he cannot then use his claim to say, you have to listen to this. Really, it brings us right back to that issue of what do we mean by the church having authority over the mind and the state having authority over the body as, as a distinction of God's care for his whole creation. Really, I think a good way to speak of it is to say that the church has the authority to defend the mind or to, you know, again, office of the keys, either clear the conscience or bind the conscience or even just inform and teach the conscience. The church does not have authority over the mind. It has authority to do God's will for the mind. In the same way, the state does not have authority over the body. It has authority to defend the body. It does not have authority to redefine the body. It does not have authority to say, here now is how you're going or how you must care for your body. And so when we see people say, well, I'm a Christian, and therefore when I get into government, I'm going to make laws and you have to believe my good intentions because I'm a Christian, and therefore you have to follow this law. And you say, well, wait a second, that law is totally against the Christian faith. And so we can't burden Christians by saying, just because a Christian has a civil office and he uses that civil office incorrectly, therefore, you have to listen to it anyway because he's a Christian has good intention. All the worse when it's a bishop or a pastor who claims, because I'm a pastor, you should listen to this new law that we put into place that goes against the gospel and against the Christian faith. So these types of things were happening historically in which you'd have bishops and pastors of Rome stepping into these positions of authority and then using that civil authority incorrectly to, in a sense, redefine the gospel. You have the same reality or potential for that reality in our day in which Christians would use the civil office in an unchristian way and therefore should be rebuked for that.
uh, in paragraph nine, or excuse me, in paragraph 29, you have also this question of, well, what about you know bishops who do not carry out their civil duties properly? Do they have the line of defense of saying, well, the state can't do anything to me because I'm a bishop? No, the state does have authority over someone who is misusing their authority in the civil realm, even if that person says, no, 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 I'm a bishop and therefore I'm only accountable to God. Not if you are carrying out a civil authority. Now the state can rise up with the sword, if you will, and discipline and punish the one who is misusing his civil authority. So it's a real interesting series of what ifs that show this interplay between not only the two realms, but a person who tries to have one foot of authority in each and then conflates those authorities back and forth, which then ends up perhaps even preaching a different gospel, but at least it ends up misusing authority in either realm or in both realms. Yeah, and I certainly agree. And this historically was a problem, right? But I also want to make this point that at the same time, we're also saying that this doesn't mean that they can't consult one another. In fact, we would probably say that they should consult one another because they're they're related to one another. They're both, you know, the body and the soul are both gifts of God, and they're going to constantly come together in these issues. And so really the government should be consulting the church, you know, as they make just laws that seek to defend the body and things as, as you helpfully accented there for us. And also, you know, yeah, the church, I mean, we do this and this is again, during the whole pandemic COVID things and so forth, this was constantly the tension and discussion going on as related to our gatherings and so forth. But even just like a simpler example to kind of dig into here. Yeah, we're going to want to consult the government in terms of, you know, uh, what is a safe capacity for our building, you know, for fire codes and those sorts of matters and so forth that, you know, we want to provide a healthy atmosphere uh, for for uh, the care of these bodies and the defense of the body. Right. And, uh, you know, we want our way of life to be defended in this country. And so we should pray for our soldiers and all of those sorts of matters as well. Right. And our governing authorities. And so we're constantly, we should be consulting one another as we seek to properly distinguish and carry out what is our God-given focus within the two realms and so forth. But uh, I think that's commonly misunderstood, right? Is that, you know, even if in the example that you gave of a pastor who also happens to be serving in the government and so forth, or just any general Christian, I think the secular worldview a lot of times, and it really becomes its own theology as we hinted at earlier, but the secular worldview is, is that, you know, you have to check your Christianity at the door, right? No, we should all along be consulting one another. They, they should be, when they're making decisions about how to respond to the pandemic and so forth, the government should be checking in with the church and saying, you know, how do we stay within our realm here and defend the body, but also make sure that you're able to do and carry out your work, church, right? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It- the idea of saying you should be a Christian in your private life, but not bring that into your role within the government, that's just a lie. And it's also a farce because you know that the same people who are saying that regarding Christians, they themselves are holding to their political positions with very deeply held beliefs, you know, regarding these political positions and how it would carry out their worldview. So it's, I mean, that's not even an honest argument on their, on their behalf because they don't check their own positions at the door either. But it would be even if everyone correctly checked their positions at the door, that would be to the detriment of government because government is to be informed 
by Christian thought. It's to be helped by Christian thought and saying, you know, what what is God's holy will? Because Christian thought does not just include the gospel, but God's holy law is best known by Christians, even though it is for all creation, right? The Ten Commandments govern all creation. And so right there, just the mention of the Ten Commandments should remind people that the Ten Commandments, it's not unique to or specific for the church. The Ten Commandments govern all creation, which shows that you cannot very neatly say the spiritual realm has nothing to do with the civil realm and the civil realm has nothing to do, but they inform one another. In the same way, I think as pastors, pastors should be encouraged to talk with their people about the civil things that are going on and not just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, that's a matter of politics. And I think we've perhaps done a poor job of that over the last century because of this idea of saying the church's 501c3 status, you cannot say anything about politics. Well, certainly it's not a pastor's job to tell people vote for this person, but not that person or whatever, but it is a pastor's job to help inform their people because the people are, think of it this way, the people are members of the government in our constitutional republic, right? You are a member of the government by the fact that you vote for who your governmental leaders are going to be. So you have, as a citizen, you have a very specific role in the whole governmental structure, even if you are not known as a member of the government. And yet you are to be informed by your pastor of what is good and godly, right? You are, you are to consider and weigh these things. What is good and godly as I go to cast my vote? Uh, and that vote informs the government. So just the idea of voting is a good reminder of how church and state touch one another and should not be kept completely separate, even though they are distinct from one another. So uh, that whole issue really needs to be relearned, I think, among Christians, that the church should not be afraid of speaking about matters that might touch on politics, especially in a society in which, as you hinted at earlier, the government is reaching into all corners of life and declaring political issues that are really moral issues, uh, really theological issues. And so the Christian needs to defend against that and needs to help get the government back to its rightful place of saying, how about taxes? How about roads? You know, how about the rule of law? How about the government's place to defend its citizenry through uh, defended borders? You know, those are things that government should be dealing with. But the idea of saying government gets to declare moral issues to now be political so that supposedly Christians have to check their theology at the door, uh, that's just an absurd argument. All right. Excellent. And uh, I hate to do this because, again, we we just can do a whole series. I mean, we could create an entire show just to talk about these things. And there are actually some great shows and podcasts out there that do this on a regular basis, engaging some of these matters as well. And of course, local parish pastors do as well. But just for the sake of pushing forward here, I think it's important that we hit some other things coming up here that look almost like a shift in what's going on in this article that uh, from paragraph 30 through like 52 and even beyond that, this shift to almost, you know, not talking about the distinction, although it's certainly still related, not the distinction so much of the authority of the church and the authority of the state, but almost kind of governance within the church. uh, I might phrase it that way. So picking up with line 30, it says, there's a dispute about whether or not bishops or pastors have the right to introduce ceremonies in the church. And then they list some examples. And it really kind of makes me laugh because, uh, I mean, there's a dispute about whether or not they can introduce ceremonies. In the, I mean, has that dispute ever ended? I don't know. Get us into this here, Pastor Bessel. 
Yeah, that dispute still is raging, isn't it? So I think the historical flow of this article, remember, is there's abuse among the clergy, both in their attempting to claim authority in civil matters and now also in their attempt to really lord authority over the people, even in places uh, and even in the realm in which they do have authority. And so it can be that authority can be abused not only in society, but it can be abused even in the church. And so that's what the rest of these paragraphs are about is at what point is the authority valid and people are incorrectly saying, hey, you don't have authority to do this versus at what point do people have a legitimate gripe and saying, wait a second, you're, you're appealing to this as a matter of the gospel when you're just wanting to you know, dictate to us life within the church. And by appealing to it as a matter of the gospel, you are then burdening consciences. And that's really the issue. The issue is if a pastor says this has to be done for the sake of the gospel, oof, that's a pretty bold claim because what, what he's claiming is apart from this, the person cannot have a clear conscience before God. Apart from this, there is no forgiveness of sins. Apart from this, there is no redemption. So we, pastors need to be really careful to understand that, that to tie the ceremonies and customs of the church to say this has to be done for the sake of salvation is to incorrectly burden consciences. At the same time, the parishioner can incorrectly say, therefore, the pastor has no right or authority to say anything about ceremonies and customs. Well, that's not true either. But rather, as, we, as I mentioned in the top of the hour, if the first half of this article is really sort of governed by, in some ways, the relationship of Romans 13 to other passages in which Christ talks about the authority of Caesar, if that's the first half, the second half of this article really can be informed greatly by 2 Timothy 1, in which Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words. That pattern of sound words would imply that there is a good order, that there are customs, that there are traditions. Think of Acts chapter 2, where it talks about the fact that all were in accord and they were following the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And some people would make the argument Maybe it's not a conclusive argument, but I think it's a good argument that the prayers there is a very specific term referring to the pattern of prayer, the liturgical prayer, and not just random ex corde prayer, if you will. So that's really what the second half is all about, is are the pastors rightly appealing to saying these customs can be for good order, they can be instructive, they can teach the people, they can point the people to Christ, or are they saying, these customs that we're now bringing into the church are needed to bring people to faith. They're needed for the forgiveness of sins, that apart from these, the people cannot be forgiven. Apart from these, the people cannot have faith. Of course, the historical context, you have things like laws regarding meats, that if you eat meat on Friday, then you're a sinner who needs to repent. Well, the scriptures never say anything about that or certain customs or days that if you don't keep those customs or days, now you're in sin and you need to repent of that. Those things are understandably burdened to people's consciences with the claim of, of thinking, maybe I am sinning if I am not keeping this. Uh, just as a little bit of a, a side note here, my congregation and I, we have a book club that I lead, uh, and we're, we always read some book from CPH or you know a, a good Lutheran book or Orthodox book, or sometimes we'll read a book in which I say, all right, we have to read this very critically, so make sure you come to the 
the book review so that you can hear me analyze this for you. Uh, we just finished not too long ago reading The Hammer of God, wonderful book by Bo Gertz. And in that, you've got one of the novella in which the people were being taught that they could not do things like dance, or they could not do things like wear jewelry, or drink at all. Uh, of course, not drinking in excess, but even just drink alcohol at all. And these things were burdening their consciences so that in one of those stories, the older pastor's own daughter refused to wear the jewelry left by her mother, her now deceased mother, because the young pastor who had come in had so burdened her conscience with this legalism, uh, sort of this pietism that said, if you wear this jewelry, you are a sinner. So those types of additional customs and rules, basically the pastor is abusing his authority by claiming this is a matter of the gospel. Of course, this does not exhaustively define the situation in the local Lutheran congregation. If a pastor is saying, uh, you must do this or you'll be in sin, he's committing the same grievance as denounced here. In fact, if the reader takes a look at paragraph 50, it very specifically says in paragraph 50, therefore ordinance instituted as though they are necessary or with the view that they merit grace are contrary to the gospel. Therefore, it follows that it is not lawful for any bishop to institute and require such services. It is necessary that the doctrine of Christian freedom be preserved in the churches. So on the one hand, you have that. Interestingly, I would make this argument. This so often is argued as if it is those of us who love the liturgy who are forcing this upon the people. I don't know of anybody who says that the liturgy is required for the sake of salvation. Interestingly, though, those in our society who say the person will not receive the gospel, they will not accept Jesus into their heart, they will not come to faith unless we use a certain type of music, they're very perilously close to saying, unless we enter this custom into the church, the people cannot be saved. And so I would actually throw the argument on the other foot, if you will, and say those who really advance this mindset that we have to have worship that is contemporary to the people's understanding or else the people cannot be saved. Oof, that's a really close, really dangerous argument, very close to what is actually being denounced here in Article 28. Yeah, I think uh, to accent on kind of several of those examples that you gave, you accented from Bo Geertz's work, The Hammer of God there, but we see it even in the early Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, even by my great hero, CFW Walter, who was an Orthodox teacher and so forth. But, you know, kind of coming down in places like, you know, you cannot have insurance and be a Christian. That was really pietistic and overstepping the bounds. And we've certainly seen that change here. Or, you know, that common argument that gets thrown out there, you know, that uh, unless we make church relevant, then faith really won't take hold and we'll have a dead orthodoxy. Or by the same token, you know, and I agree that I don't see anyone saying that you need the liturgy. But, you know, at times we can be perilously close on that end as well and, and say, you know, well, we have to maintain this because this is the way the church has done it, you know, kind of thing. Really what you need is faithful teaching. And you want to consider these sorts of things. I mean, yeah, I can't step in and say you cannot drink alcohol at all or you're not a Christian. Well, right. But Scripture certainly has things to say about how we should use alcohol and within good order and all of those sorts of things. And so, again, we need to be engaging these things and thinking through how we live out in Christian piety, the right use of these things or refraining from things because of their danger 
uh, and all of those sorts of things. But they continue this thought into the next section as well. And so, you know, with line 53, they pick up and say, what then are we to think of the Sunday rites and similar things in God's house? And so get us into this section here. Yeah, you mentioned in your comment the word teaching, and that's really what this is really all about. The proper use of pastoral authority regarding customs really is all about teaching. Be patient and teach so that people understand there's a good, well-thought-out reason to use things the way that we're using them. There's good order. Uh, In fact, the, the confessions here in these paragraphs say, that things are to be done orderly, not to teach that we merit grace or make satisfaction, but that we do these things orderly, uh, and that we can break them without offense to others, right? So when people love these things and then we rip them away, then we got a problem, right? Or then we're doing this by offending others. But rather, if we teach, 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 then they will receive these things as their own. And then it's done in love, in patience, uh, in our congregation. We did 10 years of teaching before introducing the crucifix. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs 10 years. Maybe one congregation needs 10 weeks. Uh, But you just have to teach so that people aren't offended when you finally bring in a custom that is meant to be good and godly and really has a good proper use. But because you didn't teach and you just forced it upon them, it burdens their conscience. And so this is really what these paragraphs, in a nutshell, are really all about, is saying that there is good reason to keep the liturgy that we've had, to keep the customs that we've had. They teach well. They've been well thought out. They're tried and true. And so our goal is not to jettison everything and start over all the time, but rather it's to keep those traditions and customs that teach well pointing folks to the gospel. They are not in and of themselves the gospel, but they do point people to the gospel. Uh, One of the quotes here, it is proper that the church keep such orders for love and tranquility to avoid giving offense to one another that all things be done in the churches in order without confusion, just so long as consciences are not burdened to think that they are necessary for salvation. When we uh, remodeled our uh, sanctuary, we introduced for the first time in 50 years an altar rail, and we had to teach in the months leading up to it because we had some folks that were concerned. Are you saying that if I don't kneel, I'd be receiving the Lord's Supper in sin? No, 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 not at all, not at all, right? This is Christian freedom, and yet it teaches humility before Christ. So whether you stand before Christ or whether you kneel before Christ, the humility ought be the same. And so It's not just the outward conduct that matters, but it's the inner understanding of these things that matters, and that's why the teaching needs to be there. And that's really where the pastoral authority is found in saying, as long as I teach really well and really carefully, then I can make the changes that I think are beneficial for the congregation that they might better learn and hear and receive the gospel. Absolutely. And I say there's a lot of harm done, even by well-intended people when these things are kind of forced upon without the teaching or, you know, too early before the teaching is taken hold and so forth. And so we should learn patience in these things as well, because then otherwise we do a lot of damage, right? And that's really where this kind of wraps up and paragraph 61 through the end and line 61, there are monstrous debates about changing the law, ceremonies of the new law and changing the Sabbath day. Uh, Again, as I said earlier, I, I don't know that those debates have come to an end nor will they ever until Christ returns, probably. But how we engage these can certainly be helpful. So go ahead and uh, wrap this up here for us today. And with just a couple minutes here, 
also just kind of give us your parting thoughts on this as well and as we wrap this up today. Yeah, I would point the reader to the fact that uh, in paragraph 62, as it wraps up, it says, These errors crept into the church when the righteousness that comes through faith was not taught clearly enough. Right? When, when we start to teach, do this just because, then people not only don't have an appreciation for it, but eventually they don't understand any of it. Uh, I, you know, I think that we could make the argument that there was a time where the church didn't teach well enough why we rejoice in the liturgy, and therefore people just ended up being a bunch of traditional, well, we do it because our parents did, our grandparents did, we don't know why we do it, which then leads to the temptation to give it up and try something different and try something new. So even 500 years ago, when the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, right, there's the righteousness, not a righteousness because your faith is worthy of being saved, but because your faith holds on to Christ, the righteousness of Christ, when that is taught, then people rejoice in these things. When it is not taught, then it leads to simply do this, and people then are burdened in conscience. They start to think that they might save themselves by their Christian conduct and piety rather than the fact that they have been saved by Christ. So it leads to a bunch of errors, erroneous rules, burdened consciences all around. So whether it's the relationship with the distinction of church and state, or whether it's the authority of the pastors within the church, everything must point to God's love for his creation and God's plans for his church in Christ Jesus. And where everyone is taught that in both doctrine and ceremony, and you'll get into that in the conclusion next week, in both doctrine and custom, where everyone is taught that and pointed to Christ and sees Jesus only as their salvation, then there's great joy and a clarity of conscience and a love of neighbor. Absolutely. That is certainly what we'll get into next week in the conclusion and is the real focus of the Augsburg Confession and the various articles that we've put forward here. So that's what we'll pick up next week as we look then at the conclusion of the Augsburg Confession. Also, we'll get into some more of the historical information on how we get to the apology of the Augsburg Confession and bring some of that as well as we wrap up this series on the Augsburg Confession. For today, thank you to Pastor Mark Bessel for joining us for Concord Matters again and teaching us this Lutheran Confession of Church Authority from Article 28 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us again today, dear Pastor Bessel. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sean. And thank you also to our underwriter, Wicking Vicar. Check out their performance clerical wear at wickingvicar.com. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.